I got to tell you, one of the great joys and honors of my life is being your pastor. Uh, just as my wife and children have a special place in my heart, you, as my faith family, have a special place in my heart. This week and last, as I've been doing my studies and preparation to feed you these two Sundays, there's been a, a troublesomeness within me dealing with such a sensitive and difficult topic of divorce. What came to my mind as I was praying for you and praying over the message this week was 1 Thessalonians 2.7, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Thessalonian church in which he says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He's saying just as the apostles were gentle with the church, as they were just like a mother who cares for her nursing child, so too the apostles were towards the church. And that verse really summarizes my heart towards you in the midst of us studying a very difficult and even painful subject like divorce, that I want to be tender and gentle with you dealing with some very difficult truth. In fact, the approach I've sought to take yeah, last week and again today is the, the balance of both being truthful and tender. And so as your pastor, I, many of you either have either gone through divorce yourself, uh, your parents have gone through divorce, or someone you know and love, they've gone through divorce. And the topic is painful, it's difficult. It brings great stress if even fear into your heart. What I want to do this morning is take time to instruct you from the scriptures on what God's word says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I want God to be the one who speaks with clarity and accuracy on this topic that can be really difficult for us to navigate. But before we get into Mark chapter 10, I want us to begin in Proverbs chapter 5. So if you wouldn't mind, grab your Bible. If you're watching at home, grab your Bible. If you don't have one with you, you can pull it up on your phone. It's included in the Westwood app. And I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 5. As you're turning there, the irony of Proverbs chapter 5 is that it was written by Solomon who didn't keep it. Solomon in Proverbs chapter 5 is teaching on fleeing, running away from the tempter, the temptress, the adulteress, those who seek to bring God's people into sexual immorality. But here's a guy who didn't keep it himself. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. This is a man who did not obey what the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. So Westwood, let's be a people who not only read, but also heed Proverbs chapter 5. Read this with me if you don't mind. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding, so that you may maintain discretion and your lips safeguard knowledge. Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps head straight for Sheol. She doesn't consider the path of life. She doesn't know that her ways are unstable. So now, sons, listen to me. 
Don't turn away from the words from my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Otherwise, you will give up your vitality to others and your years to someone cruel. Strangers will drain your resources and your hard-earned pay will end up in a foreigner's house. At the end of your life, you will lament when your physical body has been consumed and you will say, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised correction. I didn't obey my teachers or listen closely to my instructors. I'm on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streets in the public squares? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes and he considers all his paths. A wicked man's iniquities will trap him. He will become tangled in the ropes of his own sin. He will die because there is no discipline and, because, and be lost because of his great stupidity. Solomon is warning against the danger of adultery. The danger of falling into the trap of a tempter, a temptress, a man or woman who is calling someone out towards sexual immorality. And if we kept reading into Proverbs chapter 6, we would see that Solomon compares adultery to like playing with fire. You will get burned. He goes on to say in chapter seven that if you take that step towards adultery, that you are like an ox to the slaughter. You are like a deer bounding towards a trap that ends in death. But rather, instead of running towards the temptress, we are to do the exact opposite. He admonishes us here in chapter five to not look her way, to not look his way, but look the way towards your spouse. In fact, he commands us, Proverbs 5 verse 19, to get drunk. It's the only time in scripture that we are commanded to get drunk. And what are we supposed to get drunk on? The love that we have for our spouse. We are to be intoxicated with the love that a husband has for his wife and a wife has for her husband. This is God's design. God's design for marriage in which we flee from all forms of sexual immorality and we pursue unity in the one flesh relationship between husband and wife. You're to enjoy your spouse that God has given to you. But what if that doesn't take place in your life? Are there times, situations, in which there is a moment in which we are permitted to walk away from the marriage? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Mark chapter 10. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and fast forward with me to Mark chapter 10. 10. We 
are walking through the Gospel of Mark as a faith family in a sermon series called On the Move. We see more than 41 times in the Gospel of Mark the word immediately show up. Over and over, we see this fast-paced, hard-hitting approach that Mark takes in his gospel in which he addresses Jesus in the wonderful works that he has done. As a faith family, we have seen Jesus raise the dead, walk on water, feed thousands with the little boy's lunch. We've seen Jesus calm a storm by his word. We've seen him cast out demons, teach the disciples, preach to thousands, and rebuke the Pharisees. We've seen all the way up through chapter nine how Jesus has spent his ministry in chapters one through nine in the northern part of Israel up around Galilee. Now in chapter 10, Jesus has made his way south. Now from chapter 10 through the rest of the book, we see Jesus in the southern part of Israel. So Mark divides his gospel up into Jesus's ministry of geography, one through nine in the north, 10 through 16 in the south. In chapter 10, we see Jesus not quite to Jerusalem. In fact, he's in modern-day Jordan, the country of Jordan. He's on the east side of the Jordan River. And that is where we pick up in Mark chapter 10, where the Pharisees come and challenge Jesus on the topic of divorce. Now, notice from the text, Jesus is shockingly countercultural, yet biblically faithful teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We see first the the confrontation. These Pharisees, they confront Jesus to test him. They're trying to trip him up in his words, hoping that he would fail. Well, Jesus responds to their question with a question, verse two, what did Moses command you? Here, Jesus is pointing them to the scriptures as the final authority over their questions. The Pharisees, verse three, they give a sloppy interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 and state that they can divorce for whatever reason they want. Jesus tells them, no, you missed it. In fact, Moses gave, number two, the command. The Jews, verse five, had hard hearts towards the Lord in Moses's day and now also in Jesus's day. Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 24 that their hearts were unfaithful to the Lord, that the people's hearts, they had committed spiritual adultery. Jesus then points them back further to before Moses, to the very beginning of creation, the genesis of marriage. In number three, where we see the creation mandate. Quoting Genesis 2, Jesus here, verse 6, reminds them of the creation mandate that from the beginning of creation, verse 6, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Here, Jesus is reiterating God's design for marriage from the beginning of creation. That marriage is designed between one man, one woman for life. Jesus then gives number four, the charge. We see this charge that he gives to all marriages that are to maintain and to keep God's original design. In verse nine, he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage is to be permanent until death do us part. And yet the disciples, they're not picking up what Jesus is putting down. 
They're not fully understanding what Jesus is teaching here. They're unclear. So once the crowds had left, they're back at the house with Jesus and they begin questioning him on this matter. Jesus then provided them with number five, the clarification. He tells them, verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Verse 12, also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Here, Jesus is pointing to the sin of adultery that takes place through an illegitimate divorce and an illegitimate remarriage. Because of the hardness of their hearts, the Pharisees had forgotten Malachi 2.16, where it says that God hates divorce. The Jews had created a no-fault divorce system where they could divorce their wife for any reason at all. All they had to do was sign some papers and send her packing. Jesus is saying, no. Marriage in God's eyes is significantly greater than that. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. And then in verses 11 and 12, Jesus is clarifying to the disciples that no-fault divorce is illegitimate. And whoever remarries after an illegitimate divorce commits adultery. That's the point Jesus is making here in verses 11 and 12. You can't just divorce for any cause and then remarry whoever you want to. Okay, that's adultery, Jesus says. Here, Jesus is holding up the sanctity of the institution of marriage, and he is rejecting the first century culturally accepted practice of jumping from marriage to marriage to marriage. You see, there was a a traditional understanding at that time that a man could divorce his wife for whatever reason. If she burns dinner, divorce. She doesn't fold my clothes right, divorce. If she doesn't please me in a certain way, divorce. This was the culturally accepted way of marriage and divorce at the time. Well, the disciples, they're stunned by Jesus's response. So much so that Matthew records in Matthew 19, 10, the disciples said to Jesus, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. The disciples, they're shocked that Jesus had such a high standard of marriage, that the marriage covenant is is binding, that, that permission to divorce was only in the most extreme circumstances. So, What are the extreme circumstances for divorce? Now put this in your notes. According to scripture, divorce is permitted when a spouse is dangerously abusive, deserts the relationship, or commits sexual immorality. Now we're going to walk through each of these one at a time. First, according to Exodus 21, a husband is responsible to provide for his wife. Exodus 21 verse 10 says, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Here, what Moses is addressing from the Lord is that he is intentionally seeking to hurt her. He isn't to do this. He isn't to take away her food. He isn't to take away her clothing. He isn't to take away her marital rights. He cannot do this. Here, Exodus 21 demonstrates how much God deeply cares for how a wife is to be treated. Paul affirms Exodus 21 in the New Testament. 
When you get to 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians 5, we see God's design for marriage, for how a husband is to love his wife. He is to be willing to lay down his life for her, to serve her in the same way that Jesus loves and serves and laid down his life for his bride, the church. But if he doesn't provide for her needs, according to Exodus 21.10, if he doesn't care for her, if he's hurting her, then Exodus 21.11 permits divorce when those requirements are not met. You see, God is doing two things here in Exodus 21. He is warning the husband and he is protecting a vulnerable wife and even potentially her children. So if a husband doesn't provide for his family, much less if he sinfully and dangerously abuses his wife, he has broken the one flesh relationship union of Genesis 2. So if a spouse is physically abusive by their sinful actions, they have abandoned the one flesh union that God created in the marriage covenant. Secondly, if an unbelieving spouse deserts the relationship, if he or she leaves their spouse, if the Christian is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves, what is she to do? What is he to do if the wife leaves? Well, scripture permits divorce in such cases. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, it says, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. So if an unbelieving spouse leaves because of the faith of the believing spouse, or if they just walk away for whatever reason, proving that they don't know Jesus, the scripture says, let them leave. Preserve, verse 15, peace in the family. They've broken the covenant to leave and to cleave to their spouse. Now we're gonna unpack this more here in just a few moments. Lastly, if a spouse commits sexual immorality, then divorce is permitted. There are two different places in Matthew's gospel where he records Jesus giving two exception clauses that permit a spouse to divorce for sexual immorality. I'll put them on the notes for you up, in the, up on the screen. Matthew 5.32, Jesus says, But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And then in Matthew's parallel account of Mark 10, the passage we just read, Matthew adds the exception clause that Mark does not hear. In Matthew 19, he says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, Matthew includes these two exception clauses that Mark and Luke do not. Why? It's because Matthew is stating what Mark and Luke's audiences already assumed was obvious, okay? There was an expectation, an understanding culturally that if there was sexual immorality in the marriage, divorce was permitted. And so Mark and Luke don't put it in their gospel because they're already assuming the common knowledge of their original readers that this was already the case, but we do the same thing, don't we? If we're on Interstate 65 headed south and we get to the Alabaster exit and we tell people we were driving 20 miles an hour, we know that the speed limit didn't change. We know construction has started again or it's a Saturday in the summer, right? Or 
If someone says, you know, I went to the store on Saturday after Thanksgiving and there was no one there. We all know why. It's Iron Bowl weekend. No one goes to the store on that Saturday. There's cultural assumptions here. We have them. Mark and Luke already have them. So they don't have the exception clause. But then the second question I have is, why does Jesus permit divorce due to sexual immorality? And where I land on this is because it breaks the one flesh union of Genesis 2. We see in Genesis 2, God's original design for marriage, that the one flesh relationship, the sexual union between husband and wife, it's pointing to something bigger than itself. And here Jesus is saying, when that is broken, so is the covenant here. This is an exception clause. So in the context here of what Jesus is saying, he is repudiating no-fault divorce. He is rejecting divorce for trivial purposes. And yet he permits it because sexual sin breaks the one flesh relationship from the covenant of marriage. Now here's what's unique and different than the culture that in which you and I think. Because in the first century, for both Jewish and Roman cultures, they required divorce for adultery. If one spouse was unfaithful, by their laws, divorce was mandatory. And yet Jesus here is more radical than the culture. Jesus goes a different path. Instead of requiring divorce like the culture, Jesus permits it. He's opening the door for the power of his gospel to be the means through which broken marriages can be restored. He's doing something so countercultural that he is setting up a situation in which he, the victor, is able to do what humanly cannot be considered as possible. Now, it's important to note, here's the distinction. Permission does not equate requirements. As followers of Jesus, we know the power of Jesus to reconcile and to restore that which was broken. The power of the gospel is seen on how God is able to transform the heart of anybody. If he can take the heart of a murderer and turn him into a church planter like the Apostle Paul, God can do it in your marriage. The power of the gospel is seen in God taking those who were broken and sinful like all of us and restore us back into a right relationship with him and in a right relationship with one another, including our spouses. I've been in ministry for 18 years. And for 18 years, I've seen God do the miraculous. I have seen the most terrible, egregious situations between a husband and a wife. And the gospel is applied and the power of Jesus is on display. And he takes those who are at odds with each other and bring them to the point of humility, repentance, reconciliation, and love. 
That's what Jesus can do. The power of the gospel is seen that even though all of us are sexually broken, all of us are sexually sinful, we have a savior Jesus who's able to reconcile us not only with the Lord, but also with our spouse. If today you're wondering, can God forgive me? The cross is where he goes on record and says, yes, I will. The power of the blood of Jesus to forgive all of your sin and to restore back your marriage. He is able. This is what the gospel provides for all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus by faith. If you have sinned sexually, the good news of the gospel is that you can be forgiven. You can be restored into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Today, turn from your sin. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, for your brokenness. This is why he came. And he was put into a tomb, but he didn't stay there. For after the, on the third day, he came back to life and he defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. And all who trust in him will be restored and received into the kingdom. This is what the gospel does. The gospel is able to take brokenness and bring unity and joy and reconciliation between two people who once were separated because of sin. God is able to restore. Y'all, I've seen it over and over and over. God is powerful. Jesus is still on the move, even in the midst of two people who are sexually broken. The gospel has the power to restore. Well, in that case, Kenneth, if I sin and God's grace looks great and glorious, why don't I just keep on sinning, right? Paul says, Romans 6.1, by no means. Heck no. Don't you dare go that way. In fact, if you know Jesus, you don't want to go that way. You don't want to keep sinning so that God's grace may abound. No, 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 no. The gospel is what's changed your heart. Maybe today you are the spouse who has been sinned against. Or maybe it's someone who's not your spouse, but someone who has sinned against you. The command in Ephesians 4 is to forgive. Well, there's no way I can forgive them. Don't you know what they've done to me? Don't you know the pain I've experienced, preacher? Don't you know the, the, the struggle my family's had to endure? No, I don't understand, but God does. And I know that your sin and my sin is such an egregious affront to God, and yet he still forgave us. In fact, the way that you've been forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and future, by Jesus, is what empowers you to forgive those who have sinned against you. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. How? Just as God in Christ forgave you. As a follower of Jesus, you have been forgiven of an infinite debt you could never repay. Until Jesus came and through his cross made a way for you to be forgiven. He's made a way for you to be set free so that your 
laundry list of sins are wiped clean. Out of the overflow of that forgiveness you have in Christ, you now extend it to those who sinned against you. If your spouse has sinned against you in Christ, the gospel empowers you to forgive them. Maybe there's someone in your past who they're taking up space in your mind and in your heart because you're so angry. And there's even potentially bitterness that is growing in your heart towards them. You see, unforgiveness is kind of like drinking poison, expecting someone else to die. Forgiveness is what sets you free. It's what displays the power of the gospel. It's what empowers you to walk in the freedom that Jesus came to let you live in. You see, the cross is what empowers you to walk in the forgiveness that you've already received in Jesus, knowing that you and I, we deserve hell. But God is so merciful. He doesn't give it to us. He provides a way out through his son and he washes us and he forgives us. And so now through Christ, you can do the exact same thing in your marriage, in your previous relationships towards that person who has sinned against you. If your spouse has sinned against you sexually, I implore you, if at all possible, don't divorce. Pray. Be patient. Seek wise counsel. Listen to those who tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Put your face in this book and read and obey and ask for God to move. Kenneth, you're asking of a whole lot. Remember, God never asks you to do something that he himself hasn't already done. Because we see throughout the scriptures where God forgives an unfaithful Israel. We see where a Hosea loves his unfaithful wife, Gomer. We see the Lord who loves his unfaithful church. You see, God says, I'm going to show you what forgiveness looks like. I'm going to show you what it looks like to be sinned against, to be hurt, to be cut deeply by the rejection of those you love. And I'm going to show you how to forgive. And it's all done through the work of my son. So, I'm not sure where you're at today, but I want you to know the gospel is powerful. Jesus is everything. And he can work in your marriage. I've seen it. Our pastoral staff has seen it. Many of you have seen it. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you see the local church where God takes a, a mess and he makes it beautiful. That's what he does. That's his power. Some of you might be thinking, well, you've not described my situation. What about this? Well, in your notes, I've put five what-if situations. Now, this list is not exhaustive. In fact, there is so much that is not covered in this message, and there are great resources I'd love to point you to. 
but these are five what-if situations based upon scripture that I want to kind of point you to for these next few minutes. The first is this, what if I want to marry an unbeliever? Am I permitted to marry them? The answer is no. You cannot marry someone who does not know Jesus. The scripture clearly prohibits believers from marrying unbelievers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Okay, We cannot, as followers of Jesus, lock arms with someone who does not know Jesus. And can I also say this? Just because someone goes to church does not mean they know Jesus. Just because someone says, I know Jesus, does not mean that they know Jesus. Okay, Living in the cultural South, we have to have eyes to see through the lens of Scripture. And there are a lot of people who can fool you because they can act a certain way on Sunday. What you're watching is to see what do they look like Monday through Saturday. You're examining character. Is there a hunger for the word? Do they genuinely love Jesus? Are they growing in godliness? When they sin, do they repent and run to Jesus? Are they willing and eager to quickly ask for forgiveness? How do they treat people around them? Do you see a growth in godliness? Now, of course they love the local church. Of course they're serving the local church. They're financially invested in the local church. This is who we're looking for, but there's not just the Sunday activity. You're looking for someone who genuinely loves and follows Christ. If you are dating someone who does not know Jesus, it's time to call it off. It is not God's will for you to marry them. But Kenneth, I might reach them for Jesus. Someone might but not in a dating or marriage relationship. God is going on records here, 2 Corinthians 6, and I gave you lots of scripture references. Don't do it. It's not God's will. Second question. What if I illegitimately divorced and remarried? What should I do? Answer. Stay married to your current spouse. But what if I I divorced when I shouldn't have? I didn't have biblical grounds. Or what if I married someone who divorced illegitimately and I married them? Stay married. This is whom God has ordained for you to stay married to at this time. Whether your first divorce was legitimate or not, you're in a covenant now. So don't divorce now. Okay. You're married now. Don't sin twice by breaking this covenant now. God is gracious and loving. And though you may have entered into that marriage sinfully, the gospel is seen on how God is able to redeem, restore, and forgive. Look to Jesus, ask for forgiveness, confess your wrongdoing, and then walk in the victory of Christ, moving forward with who you're married to now. Stay faithful. In fact, that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 7. He says in verse 20, let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. So if you were divorced illegitimately and remarried illegitimately, stay married to who you're married to now. Thirdly, what if I am married to an unbeliever? What should I do? Answer, stay married. If they are willing to stay in the marriage, so too are you. 
Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 3. He says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. So if you're married to someone who doesn't know Jesus, your, your husband isn't a believer, your, your wife isn't a believer, stay married, stay faithful, model the gospel, point them to Jesus. Who knows, you very well may be the means through which they come to faith in Christ. I'll tell you just a quick story. There is a woman and a husband who joined our church several years ago, both uh, in the 70s and 80s in their age. For decades, she was praying for his salvation, praying diligently. She passed away two weeks later, her husband walks forward, gives his life to Christ. You never know how God may use that. And I think about even that great glorious day when one day he takes his last breath and they see each other in heaven. Her prayers are not in vain. Her godliness is not in vain. God is able. So you stay married, you model the gospel, you pray, you serve, you point them to Jesus. Fourthly, what if my spouse leaves me? Am I permitted to divorce and remarry? The answer is yes. If the non-Christian physically deserts the Christian spouse, then the Christian's no longer obligated to stay married. In 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, Paul says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. So if one spouse leaves the other, there's freedom there, Paul says. But if this spouse claims to be a believer, it's a different process. It then becomes Matthew 18, an issue of church discipline. If the person claims to know Jesus, then you bring it to the church and we walk through a Matthew 18 model that Jesus laid out for the church of what discipline would look like in which we're seeking to restore this person back to his marriage. If they do not repent, then the local church, Matthew 18 says, that person's not a believer and you're free to divorce and remarry. So we see here these, these Q&As. This last one, I thought, I'm gonna throw it in there. I, I assumed it was obvious, but I wanted to make sure. What if number five, my spouse dies? Am I permitted to remarry? And the answer is yes. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. I love that addendum in the back. Hey, listen, you can marry anybody you want to as long as they're in the Lord, as long as they know Jesus, okay? As Paul's going on record. So these are just five situations in which you may find yourself in. If you're not... This is where God, the local church, uses his word and says, this is where I can instruct you on how you are to take next steps for your situation. The impact point for us is this. The first is this. If you're divorced and hurting, please know you are loved. You're loved. Jesus is with you even to the end of the age. He cares for you. If you have those moments where you feel lonely, please know you are not alone and you are loved by a savior, you're loved by a local church. It's the beauty of God's design through his people. Secondly, if you're single and pursuing marriage, be wise, be wise. You're not just looking for physical attraction, although that's important. There's something more that you're looking for. You're looking for godliness, love of Christ, love of his word, love for the church, 
character formation rallying around the gospel. Thirdly, if you're married, be faithful. This is whom God has called you to love until death do us part. In John chapter eight, a woman who was caught in adultery was brought to the feet of Jesus. The accusers were seeking to trip up Jesus and said, what do you say? What do we do with her? Jesus crouches down, starts drawing with his finger in the ground. He who's without sin cast the first stone. And beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they walked away until it was just Jesus and the woman. And Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, they're not here. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, the answer to sexual sin is the gospel, where Jesus at the cross makes a way for you not to be under condemnation anymore. And then you're empowered by the Spirit to go and sin no more. To look unto Jesus and say, Lord, here is my life, my sin, my marriage. Lord, I want to walk in your victory. So God, would you grant to me through your gospel? And that's where we see Jesus on the move. Even now, in your marriage, and when she calls all of us to sin no more because we're no longer under condemnation because the gospel is true. Jesus is alive.